Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 101 for January the 29th, 2013. My guest this week is Paul Ducklin again. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. I was just about to say that this week in Sydney, we have had a month's rain in a day. But that's a rather curious statement, which will come back to haunt me in one of the things that I think we're going to be discussing later about accuracy and precision. <laughs> we had a day's rainfall in a day. It was just rather a lot. Here in Vancouver, we're just holding steady the way we do every year. Eight degrees in rain, all winter. We got a couple interesting stories this week to discuss, uh, two of which are kind of tied together that, that you wrote about on our Naked Security blog this week. Um, one on developers of GitHub leaving private SSH keys, like as checked in as source code where they're publicly visible. Oops. And the other one related to IT administrators putting printers in places that can be, well, apparently indexed by Google. Yes, two sides of the same coin, because it was a GitHub search that revealed the first problem and a Google search that revealed the second. People that you think would know better, programmers who would know how to develop source code, IT administrators who are obviously on a network big enough to have expensive network printers you'd think would be conscious of having outsiders wandering in, they're choosing to make things that ought to be private available publicly. And that's always going to end in tears. Yeah, I was wondering on the printer thing if this problem might even get worse if IPv6 ever takes off, because I, I was looking at uh, a lot of the Google results, and it turns out a pretty good chunk of them were at public universities and large corporations that, for some reason, never gave up their Class A you know, IP address schemes, right? Yes, exactly the same sort of thing seems to be the case in ours. Uh, the, the organizations that are most under the pump being criticized for this are, of course, the unis. Uh, not because they're necessarily any worse, just that, as you say, they got their Class B addresses as they used to be years and years ago, so everything tends to get a public IP. Everyone else, I think, is protected inadvertently, as you might say, by the mysteries of NAT. So I think for, for a lot of people, there is an element of there but for the grace of God go I. Yeah, I, I, I converted my network at home to IPv6 about 18 months ago as a, my primary protocol just to get familiar with it. And it took me a little bit to get my head around the fact that, oops, all this stuff is no longer magically natted. I actually had this issue with my printer. You know, you could get to it on its IPv6 address across the internet because I hadn't firewalled things properly. And I had to do a rethink about all the devices on my network that were 6 capable and make sure that I properly firewalled them rather than being lazy and just relying on oh, that device is on the inside. I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> I noticed that after years and years of resilience by the IPv6 community to NAT, saying, well, we no longer need it, so let's do things properly, that the, uh, the community finally capitulated last year, and you now do get an official sanctioned NAT for IPv6. It looks as though we'll be with both the strengths and the weaknesses, the risks and the disadvantages of NAT for years and years to come. Great. Well, on these SSH keys on GitHub, I mean, you know, creating keys is not something that amateurs typically get involved in. You can imagine the coder knows enough to go to the command prompt, generate a key pair. One of them is clearly labeled private key in capital letters, if you don't mind. But of course, it's probably in a directory like .ssh that's normally invisible under their home directory. And then they go, OK, let me upload everything. So they inadvertently include all of that stuff because their upload script doesn't inhibit it. One wonders what else might have been lying around that wasn't part of their source code 
that they stuffed up there at the same time. What also begs the question of how many of those applications were then uh, trojaned later because of the fact that anybody could authenticate, in essence, to GitHub as that user and monkey with the source code. I mean, that's a very uh, dangerous situation, not just for the developer, but for anybody that might use their code. It is indeed, particularly since there is a school of thought that says, hey, if you want to be really secure, you should download the source code and compile it yourself, because you're much less likely to get a virus or a Trojan horse that way, because you're building it cleanly yourself. Well, firstly, that assumes your build environment is clean. Uh, and secondly, it assumes that the source code control system is clean. And speaking of looking after security, there's been a lot of hubbub for the last uh, probably six weeks or so about Java vulnerabilities again. Uh, this is a problem that doesn't seem to go away. With, uh, you know, last summer there was a lot of uh, O-Day, as they call it, uh, against Java and, and it being used in malicious exploit kits. And then this repeated its pattern again in December. Uh, lots of calls for getting rid of Java, eliminating Java, destroying Java, removing Java. I actually have been doing some research for things for this year's RSA conference this week and have been using Java quite extensively to run applets on my desktop. Does that make me a hypocrite? No, I think you need to be really careful with your terminology because technically what you run on your desktop are applications and its applets are the other side of the coin that one probably needs to be cautious about. And I think this is one of the problems about our call, which we've made on Naked Security and others have made a similar call saying, why not consider getting rid of Java from your browser? People have misinterpreted that and understood it as us saying, you should get rid of Java altogether. The entire thing is fundamentally flawed. Now, Java is a big programming environment. It's very powerful. It's very useful. It's widely known. And if you use it to build an application, a program that you install on your computer and run locally, then I can't see how it should be considered any more dangerous than any application an exe file on Windows, for example, that you download and install. The problem comes with applets, which are the special versions of Java programs that are designed to be served from outside by an untrusted third party and execute inside your browser, supposedly with a whole load of so-called sandbox constraints that prevent them doing everything a true application could, and that's supposed to keep you secure. But the problem is, that that sandbox over the years has been found to contain many holes, which means that a crook can send you an applet that maybe it's supposed to be a crossword puzzle, but in fact it's able to do things that only a native installed application is supposed to be able to do. There's the risk, and since very few websites actually use Java anymore, chances are that you don't need it in your browser, and if you don't need it, then you can just jolly well get rid of it, because it's just adding unnecessary risk. Well, I think for the average internet user, it's fair to say that they don't need it at all for most people. I mean, I, I know I, don't, I didn't install it on my laptop I gave my mother. Um, my wife's computer doesn't have it, and neither one of them have raised a, a bat in an eyebrow. So vulnerabilities, as far as the price of them goes, you published an article on that as well, on the, the yearly pwned own contest at CanSec West. Google and uh, HP and a bunch of other companies get together and put up some cash rewards for Vulns, and it was kind of telling what uh, vulnerabilities are worth how much money this year. For the first time this year, they're not just uh, setting you against the browser, they're also prizes for browser plus plugin. And as you say, it's informative to look at the, the balance of prize money. So if you can bust into Chrome on Windows 7, 
100k US. If you can bust into IE10 on Windows 8, 100k. Firefox is only worth 60 grand. Safari on OS 10, $65,000. And bringing up the rear, I'm sorry to say, Oracle's Java plugin. You only get 20k for busting that, and some people are saying, well, that's that price is going to go. So it is interesting to see the comparative value of exploits. You'd imagine that that reflects not just their value in the cybercriminal part of the universe, but also their relative complexity, the difficulty and the likelihood that HP or Google will have to pay out the prize. Yeah, and, and Google, again, this year is running a parallel uh, contest. Last year and the year before, they ran their own contests for some disputes uh, on the rules for Pwn to Own. But this year, um, being that they're participating and the rules are more uh, to their liking, they're still going to run their, their Ponium 3 contest. And in fact, they've put up $3.14159 million. I was a bit disappointed in that amount, Chester, weren't you? Uh, did you want it to go to more decimal points? Yes, they should have done $3,141,592.65. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of dough, but what they're planning on doing, it looks like, is issuing the prizes multiple times. So nobody wins $3.14159 million. They instead win $110,000 if they can come up with a browser or system-level compromise uh, by visiting a web page, and then they win $150,000 if they can compromise a Chromebook and have reboot persistence or device persistence, which uh, is one of the design goals of the Chromebooks is to prevent that type of thing. So I thought that was kind of interesting that if you could come up with five or six exploits, you could walk away uh, potentially with upwards of a million dollars, but no one's going to get $3 million uh, themselves in any likelihood. It's more of a press move. Yes, it is, isn't it? Pi million dollars. It's also intriguing, isn't it, to notice that the difference between a plain old threat and an advanced persistent threat is only $40,000. And I think that's a fair difference. It's, it's obviously much more complicated to escape entirely and make a permanent change to the outside system for something that's sandboxed. By the same token, I don't really think that an APT, the persistence part, is that much more damaging these days when you think of how long the average person has as an uptime for, say, a laptop. They tend not to crash. Most people use sleep work mode, which means they just close the lid and when they open it again, they carry on where they left off. If there was malware in the browser, then there's malware in the browser tomorrow. I just found that that 40k difference seemed an interesting amount. My first blush, I thought, oh, well, the persistence is going to be worth three times the price. But it's not. It's just worth 150 is to 110. Well, and speaking of uh, the precise number of pi, uh, there's a gentleman named Wayne uh, somewhere in Las Vegas, Nevada, that has a rather unfortunate... Um, a problem with accuracy and precision. I know where you're going. It's that Wayne Dobson, isn't it? He's the guy that whenever somebody's phone gets lost in the Las Vegas, North Las Vegas area, and they use one of those software programs that says, oh, find my lost phone so I can go around and remonstrate with the crook and get it back. You know, normally they pinpoint the phone within a few meters, either using GPS or Wi-Fi or cell tower location. And unfortunately, there's one provider in this part of the world that whenever they know that the lost phone is in Wayne Dobson's part of the world, say within a few miles of his house, they don't say, hey, it's within a few miles of his house. It still pops up as a precise dot smack over his residence. 
So people keep turning up his house in the middle of the night going, Oh, you, I want my phone back, you rotten steaming crook. And occasionally the cops have even come there trying to answer 911 emergency calls. So he's sort of torn between that precision that the internet seems to give us. You know, you look up Sydney on Google Maps. It doesn't show you a map of the city which occupies 12,000 square kilometres. It paints a little dot somewhere in the centroid of the central business district. And that sort of precision can be very misleading because it implies a degree of accuracy which does not exist. And as in Wayne Dobson's case, that can lead to some pretty poor security decisions. Yeah, this isn't a new problem. I mean, I remember a lot of uh, uh, maps showing where all the spammers in the U.S. are, and they're all apparently in Topeka, Kansas. Is that how you say it? Topeka. I've always wanted to mention that place, knowing it's roughly the centroid of the continental U.S., but I've never known how to say it. Uh, yes, there's a, another anomaly of that sort, is if you look at is those maps, if they cover the whole world, they often have a whole load of spammers located in what looks like the Atlantic Ocean. And that's zero degrees, zero degrees. And there is no land there. So it's, that's obviously a dud data point where there's no data. And instead of being interpreted as we actually have no idea, it gets interpreted as precisely at the place where the equator and the Greenwich Meridian cross. Well, now that we've ushered in the new year, 2013, uh, we kind of get kicking back into gear. I mean, things are always a bit slow over the Christmas holiday and the new year and this type of thing. But uh, we're, we're getting into the swing of things again. And if you'd like to come and hang out with uh, the Naked Security folks, myself or Paul or Graham, we're going to post up uh, all of our conferences and events and speaking opportunities and things that we're going to be doing over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com slash events. Uh, I'd like to invite everyone to uh, come out and see us at RSA. We're going to be at the RSA conference. Graham's going to be there and I'm going to be there this year and a lot of other Sophos staff, so you know, feel free to stop by and shake our hands and pick up a free, cool Sophos t-shirt. And that concludes Sophos Security Chat Chat episode 101. Chester, there's something that I think your modesty has precluded you from mentioning. If you like Naked Security, and in particular if you like Chester's Chat Chat, head over to ashimmy.com and you can vote for Naked Security in this year's Security Bloggers Awards. We're up for all but two of the categories, and please give Chester your vote, because he really does his best to make security news uh, accessible to as many people as possible. So we look forward to your vote. Thanks for your kind remarks, Paul. That concludes Sofa Security Chat Chat episode 101. Uh, as always, our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophos.com via RSS, or on iTunes. Uh, you can also leave us a review or a vote over at iTunes if you like. And until next time, stay secure.